everyone, my name is Stephen Ridgeway and this is Talking VTE number 33 and it's the first one for 2012 and for those of you who have been monitoring this channel or this RSS feed uh, we continue the conversation despite a rather long break. So we'll go around uh, initially with the face-to-face -face audience here in Sydney and do the introductions uh, and to my opposite Robin Jay, I think my name is. Yes, Robin Jay. <laughs> hi, hi everyone. <laughs> and hi everyone, Melanie Dorian here. Indeed. So uh, to the online audience, uh, to Michael in Adelaide. And you know what my surname is, Stephen? <laughs> Michael Coughlin. Yeah. Thank you. Hello, yeah. everyone. <laughs> and of course, Alexander Hayes in Canberra. Good evening, everybody. <laughs> and of course, now uh, Brad Beach in Victoria, I presume. Uh, yes, in Victoria. Hello, everyone. But, but um, Foursquare would indicate that Brad could actually be pretty much anywhere in Australia. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> constantly being presented by Brad's tips all around Sydney drives me to, to distraction. <laughs> yes, I do like my four square. Yes, well, I've, I'll, we can discuss later, but I, I have a new social uh, social networking app that you'll just love, uh, Brad, uh, thought, called Banjo. I thought Michael was inventing more new words with Bradical. I rather like that. <laughs> Bradical, yes. So what, uh, what inspired this podcast, at least, for, uh, is uh, Michael's sojourn to the USA uh, for the um, uh, NMC, um, for the Future in Education uh, Forum. So uh, Michael stayed here in Sydney on his way back, and we had a good conversation about lots of things that were, uh, were brought up by that um, that. Um, um, session in uh, in America, and uh, we thought it'd be a great a great starting point for a conversation. So, so I might hand over to you, Michael, to give us a bit of a bit of a overview and a pricey. Okay, thanks, Stefan. And the NMC that Stefan referred to is the New Media Consortium, and as many people will know, they they're the group that have sponsored for the last several years the Horizon Report an annual report into the future of technology and education. So this event in Texas, which they called a retreat, was to gather a hundred people together to look at this question of the future of education. So Alex, it reminded me a little bit of, you know, future of learning in a network worked world mark seven, even though it wasn't a, you know, a TALO initiative, mm. but it had, you know, a similar feel to it and lots of similar ideas. Um, it wasn't to write a report. In fact, it was a little bit unsure what it was about other than to celebrate 10 years of the Horizon reports to gather a bunch of people together in the one place and talk about the future of education. And what was interesting over the two days was that most of the conversation didn't actually focus on technology. Where the conversation quickly went was uh, describing the world of education or describing the, the trends that are having an impact on education globally and of course a lot of those trends are the result of technology but some of them 
um, may not be, but you know, the fact is the world has changed and, and parallel with these changes has been this massive change in the use of technology. So it was really a, a big, long conversation about how the world has changed and particularly with reference to education. I'll just come back to the the education bit in a minute, but to get you the give you the idea of you know why it was called a retreat. I mean, it, it was in a hotel, so and I knew it was well out of Austin, Texas. So I didn't pay a whole lot of attention. I know I got off the plane, I got in a little minivan with someone else who was going to the same place, and we talked all the time. And so we we got to the the place where the the retreat was, and then a little while later, I said, well, you know. I want to go into Austin and kind of spend the afternoon in there. How do I get there? And they said, well, it'll be a taxi and it will be $70 each way. So what? <laughs> and that was, that's how far away it was from Austin. It was about 30 or 40 miles and a very expensive taxi ride. So I didn't go into Austin that day. I decided just to wait around and went for a walk on the property. And in the evening, the event began. So, look, the thing I suppose that is the most useful thing that came out of the event for other people who weren't there is a kind of what they've called a communique and I'm going to dump the URL in the text chat and I hope that's a publicly accessible Google Doc and what it does is list the 10 most significant trends that were identified by this group of people. Now people here in this group now will find nothing new here so I don't have anything you know brilliant and new and surprising to, to report on what happened in Austin because you all know these things and they, ju they just keep coming back and I guess that's the, the more important message to take out of all of this there are certain themes that just refuse to go away and the technology might be branching off being different and new but these themes are well and truly established and i'm just going to mention you know the first few and you can actually check that list there at the url that i've put in the text chat if you want i mean the first one the world of work is global and collaborative well yes we know that i mean this what we're doing here right now is an example of this is our world of work it's not quite global here tonight but it could easily be it's certainly collaborative and this is becoming the norm not only in education but in workplaces not all workplaces but it's increasing and again these this these are opinions that represent people from about 20 different countries 20 yeah 20 countries so it's not just us in Australia or them in America there were lots of people there from South America a few people from Africa the Middle East Eastern Europe so these are these truly are everywhere so the global collaborative thing the second point that was on this list is that people expect to learn socialize and play whenever and wherever they want to so that always on thing that people want to be able to work or study on any device seamlessly move from one to the other whether they're at work or you know in the shopping center or at home and this this demand of having to supply the content whenever and wherever is just increasing it's really obvious one and it's nothing unusual but you know, the internet is a global mobile network so this is hooked into the, the previous point about always being on so the, 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 the mobile thing where we're all connected is just getting more and more so uh, they mentioned the cloud the fourth trend the impact of the cloud becoming more prevalent so this means greater bandwidth 
greater speed, less concern about storage space, which leads to a growth in media. And this has been an interesting to watch over the last about a year. There's a lot of people who keep saying it's the growth of media that's going to be most significant in technology and in particular video. So we're talking about the ability to learn from video, to create video, to upload it to wherever, whenever. So uh, we can't hear you, Michael. Did we lose Michael? Let's have a look. How about everybody else? You still there, Alex? Yeah, I'm still here, yeah. Yep, no, we just dropped. We lost Michael. Damn. Hi, Brad. You still there, Brad? Yes. Uh, I am. Yeah, <laughs> still here. Yeah. I, I, heard, I heard some sort of, sort of video. It sounded like a video thing that started and then it, he cut off. So. Yeah, I I opened the document, which of course pushed me out of Skype. Uh, oh. Skype's here, so use my. But we're Skype. using. We're, so Robin and I share multiple iPads. Yeah, Robin and um, and uh, Melanie are on iPads, of course. <coughs> One application devices. <laughs> They're not multitasking. No, we can switch from one to the other. You can switch from, switch from one Excuse to the other. Me. Okay, I'm back. Oh, You're good. back. As yeah. you were talking about high bandwidth cloud-based applications. And video. And video. Yeah, well, I, you know, I really struggled with my home ASDL because it doesn't, it's not high bandwidth and video really you know, makes it struggle as we have found out, hey Brad. But the last thing I wanted to mention was the openness thing and the openness of resources, the openness of content, the openness of process, the openness and the particular one that has been really salient for me, given what happened late last year in TAFE South Australia and, and early this year, is the openness of, of decision-making and collaborative approaching. Brad, you know that we're in the, the throes of this contestable funding thing and New South Wales about to face it too. So there are some fairly draconian decisions being made without any consultation. And so what was identified as a global trend in education is this openness in, on many fronts, but openness of, you know, in sense of collaboration and team decision making and open processes was talked about a lot. And we, we just don't do that. So that's what I'm particularly trying to work out what I do with it. So what we do with this information, and again, if you, I hope you're able to look at that Google Doc, is that I've actually started to try and local circumstances and I'm just wondering and I kind of like your ideas and thoughts about it whether or not to start a wiki or a Google Doc and just invite maybe the, the flexible learning leader community the Taylor community to come in and give their thoughts about how this plays out in particular circumstances so that's it in a nutshell I could go on for more but let's what do we think comments thoughts questions just the first thing, Mike, is that yes, you can access it because I've got it open. Great. No problem. Um, it's Brad here. I mean, I um, 
I, look, I, I like the idea of having a, a space to do that. It's interesting, Michael, when you were talking about, you know, that more collaborative uh, decision-making um, and then jumping to the contestability stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I My guess here, and not being there, is that uh, when they talk about the more collaborative decision would be more around the way in which uh, you engage learners or delivery or the way in which you do operation. I, I suspect things like contestability or the way in which government drives its agenda won't ever go into that space. You may well be right, Brad. And so, you know, we're a particular sector in a particular country with a particular set of things playing out at the moment and other places in the world, yeah, may not have that. But I still, when it comes down to... I just think it's it's an adult learning environment, and you, I don't think managers, generally speaking, should be making unilateral decisions for their work teams that have profound impact on those people's lives without any consultation. That's school business. In fact, it's not even good practice in school, and it, you can feel it. You know, I'm, I'm I'm really I'm sick of it. Yeah, no, look, I I understand that. I, I think probably in my mind. Um, when it comes to the dollars, I, I, I don't think there'll be that much open discussion ever. But I, but I think there are other parts, most certainly, where that discussion around practice, that should be, be fostered and we should have more of that. I think, it, I think it's going to reach a point where it impacts on the dollars, though. I mean, if... If by ignoring this stuff people are losing business, then um, surely management has got to start to listen. I mean, I don't think it's happening at the moment, but, um, you know, I think increasingly people are going to look beyond their... Not for everything. There are some things where you need kind of still going to need local hands-on stuff but increasingly people are going to look beyond their local context for learning opportunities and um, that's real competition isn't it where you're competing against people in other in other countries and maybe that's going to make a difference I'm Mm. not sure um, maybe, and I get this is the part of the web, you know. And I, I guess in my role now, I'm just consumed with this stuff, the, trying to unravel that web. I, I think um, in that global competition space, then you're not talking about government-funded positions, and I think that's a totally different conversation where these collaborative space. All, all I think that's a space that what we're talking about could occur where it's a government funded place I mean the reality is that the governments have a monopoly on what they they are the funder, they are the purchaser of this, they will set the price um, because of the monopoly but I think in that global space that's not government funded I would totally agree with you Yeah, It's, it's going to be interesting um, to see if in fact um, the change in the funding, the way in which funding is delivered, as as it has been in Victoria, uh, Brad, it, it seems to be going to be quite similar, sort of re- where it's a voucher-led system, but with some refinements pertinent to each state. Um, that 
increase in competition for that voucher is going to be enormous and it's going to have a lot of impacts for institutions even in New South Wales institutes they both collaborate and compete it seems and I think there's going to be a lot less collaboration possibly a lot greater competition and things will be locked away possibly a lot more I have no doubt <laughs> that, that's, that that is how it will pan out. Uh, it's and isn't it interesting, Brad, and I agree with everything you've said, but even so, so what we've got, we're subject to government policies at the moment, which you could argue are going completely the other direction to where a lot of the world is shifting. Um, yes. I mean, I, look, I, I think... It'll be interesting to see how these government directions come out. I guess probably from... I mean, there are some decisions that are being... This is my personal opinion of anyone's listening to this. This is not a Gibbs tape opinion. And I don't want to be... Because it's very politically... It can be a bit politically sensitive, what I'm about to say. But um, I, I don't think it's any secret that... Um, in some ways this contestable space and unlimited funding has potentially backfired on uh, the government or the government is experiencing uh, unexpected expenditure and um, and therefore decisions are being made that are around the reality of how much money government does or doesn't have not um, around what's the best thing educationally um, mm. And I think while government, at the end of the day, regardless of who's in government, they only have a limited amount of funds. So those funded places, there's always going to be that dollar imperative. I do think when you move into the commercial space, whether that's global commercial or industry funded programs, then I think we're starting to talk about a totally different thing. Yeah, I think that's a good, a very good point, um, Brad. And I think what they're doing is they're trying to, it seems to me they're trying to actually broker some of that direct funding through different bodies. I mean, I, I think, in, I mean, the, there's two different things here. There's one about the overall benefit of a, a more uh, contestable environment. Mm. And then there's the issue about the public sector, mm. which... Uh, is a one particular player in a contestable environment and whether it is costing them more uh, to in a, in a contestable environment than it previously did in an entirely publicly funded environment. And ironically, that might be due to the fact that the public sector was perhaps um, uh, significantly successful in terms of their private, in terms of their um, uh, commercial endeavours. And as a result of going to contestable funding, students have chosen not to pay, but to go towards um, a government-funded option. Mm. I, I, I think I think what we're talking about here is training. We're, to, we're talking about vocational education and training, the old model of it. Mm. I mean, I, I just wonder how long that model has to last in this new environment. I mean, ha having spoken to people who... Uh, you know, work in learning and development in industry. They're not interested in VET, in the in the capital letters VET traditional model of chuffing off and getting a certificate. Certificates mean nothing, you know, to sure. to them. They they want staff who have um, skills when they when when they need it in in a in a way that 
is effective and is going to help move their business forward. They, the actual certification of it appears to be increasingly um, irrelevant to, to, to them. I would agree with you, Robin, and I think that is one of the biggest challenges that we face in terms of that e-learning community. And I, you know, what industry want is one thing, and what uh, the the government-funded environment thing is another. And, and I think, in in terms of the decisions that are made, the practices that go into e-learning, the way in which we do our entire business, um, I often tell people I can be a bit schizophrenic because the you can ask me a question and I'll answer it in two opposite ways depending on whether you're talking about government funded or whether you're talking about industry funded mm-hmm. can i just raise mike um number three in the uh document that you yeah. shared with us the internet is becoming a global mobile network i was reading some it was a, a telstra white paper i think a report done late last year mm. um that was saying that increasingly the mobile is the preferred and sometimes the only access to the to the web that people have i think that's very much the case mm. so particularly in the developing world yeah so was there much discussion so it's not just about you've got a device and you can access the web with it it's like this is the only way you 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 access the web or or exchange engage in any form of learning or self-learning or um communication was there much talk about that as as the mobile format being for some people their only format and i i to be honest, I can't remember having a discussion about that particular thing in any group that I was in. I'm sure there was conversation about it. I'll just give my recent take on it from a conversation with um, actually who's the um, Leonard Lowe. Recently, I was talking to him about this kind of thing, and he said what it means is, of course, that we you're going to have to have content in a lot of different formats because we've all experienced the problem now that you try and access a website on a mobile device and it's pretty crappy unless there is a specific mobile version of that website and then of course enter the app and I think well I can't say any more than that Melanie and that's probably pretty Mm -hmm. obvious that stuff and there's nothing I can remember in particular but it's true, hey. Yeah, yeah. Having been wither the app from here. Mm, having been a student in the last year, I mean, certainly in the in the group that I studied with, the 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 only two ways of accessing uh, anything that I heard of was was either the library um, or um, a smartphone, typically. So I don't. Mm-hmm. I think it's 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 also it's not only about only having that device and and having to access via it, but it's about um, ease of use. It's about bypassing firewalls and logins mm-hmm. and all sorts of things that are yeah. that, that students see as barriers to their access. Yeah, mm-hmm. because our, our existing provisioning is inadequate. Well, it's just well, too, too, too difficult. Openness. It's too difficult for students. They, they, they couldn't be bothered 
if if they can pull out a phone and do it, <coughs> they, they will do that rather than go through the the hassle of firewalls and logins and you know things that don't work. They work one week and they don't work the next week, and they yeah. can't you know all that kind of stuff. They're not interested. Not and this is openness on two fronts. It's openness in terms of what devices we provide content and allow and encourage our students to use, but that presumes then that that content is on a public space with no login. Well, I think as large public institutions, we lost the opportunity. We had a monopoly on access to the internet when people were on campus and we tried to throttle it, control it, regulate it, kill it. Uh, students and our customers come now with higher bandwidth mobile connections and they're routing around us mm. and uh, you know what do they say about censorship uh, the internet will route around it uh, mm. so and I think that's what students are doing with regard to the services that we're offering mm. Alex I was wondering if you had any co- any comments on the number six which is the legal notions of ownership and privacy lag behind practices common in society Do you think that's going to be an issue? Sorry about that. <laughs> can, you, can you hear me? I, I had the, the microphone. Yeah, no, muted. we can hear you. Yep. Just uh, talking about, it was saying that in an age where so much of our information records and digital content are in the cloud and often clouds in other legal jurisdictions, hmm. the very concept of ownership is blurry. It's one of the, I think it's one of the largest uh, points of uh, consideration that we need to be making, particularly when we talk of connected classrooms and ubiquitous computing, and um, you know the privacy of of individuals uh, and the multiplicity of of uh, connection that they have and have to have in order for them to perform or undertake you know, mm. things in that respect. I've put in there a, a link to the Open Gov 2.0 conversation, which was sort of a, a law. Um, kind of initiative last year, but mm. you presented it that right? No, I didn't. No, no, I, I just was in contact with the Open Gov okay. people. Um, but it's interesting, as you know, I've just started. Started. I've only been in a new job for two days with um, a government department that is uh, innovation.gov.au, and as its title, and it's the science sector and it's the research data. Um, side of things, but it's also a seemingly 300,000-legged octopus with um, with tendrils that go into every other sector. And uh, these conversations around funding and contestability and so on are yeah, are pretty, are seem to be pretty much the same sort of conversations that resonate in the office that I had today. Mm. Uh, that people are competing, but it's always been that way in a science. Mm. Uh, realm, particularly at the tertiary, tertiary level, and it's. Um, it, I, I take your point. The, the the identity side and the privacy side, the security of data being in new global jurisdictions, supposedly in this magical word called the cloud, which is simply another word for off offshore uh, server <coughs> service. Um, is is really a, a massive of massive importance to think about it, how our organisations are tapping into this more global, networked nature of service. Mm-hmm. It's also about government agreements. I mean, the mm. trade agreements with 
um, the states are, have caused you know quite a lot of angst for Australian organisations. I know they have. Uh, on Michael's um, point of the openness as being perhaps an underpinning uh, part of the conversation he was immersed in, it's interesting to see that the uh, the research data commons environment is a 3.0 unported just on text but is completely is completely and utterly um, 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 data um, uh, accessible for, for anything on you know petaflops of information and databases in that respect mm. sorry yeah no and uh, so it should be although of course it's interesting in that um, you think look at um, uh, trends with Facebook and uh, Google mm. and Google Plus and Twitter, there there's been enormous uh, battles around access to data. I mean, Google has um, had access to uh, Twitter's uh, uh, firehose uh, for open search uh, and it was closed off because they weren't happy with the amount of money that uh, Google was going to pay. Uh, so, and hence the whole sort of Google move towards um, uh, social there are you know a lot of these sort of networks that we see as exemplifying openness and exemplifying open conversation and have facilitated this um, incredible global uh, revolution that we're seeing going on are also very closed when it comes to mm. the pure commercial value commercial. that they're mm. sitting on. Mm. Well, if Facebook mm. goes to become a publicly listed company... Which it has. It's yeah. apparently worth a billion dollars. Oh, no, a hundred billion. billion dollars, yeah. And they make a billion a year. That's that's the uh, IPO that's mm. been... And uh, we're the product. Well, uh, we our, are the our participation raw is. material mm. in their uh, means of production. Mm. Probably mm. a better way to put it an old Marxist lexicon. <laughs> <laughs> so information, information mining and consortium battles, uh, you know, they they need to be pushed up the list, mm. I think, um, and the impact that that's having and the implications of that impact. Mm. Michael, can I just ask, you, were at, um, you mentioned the people from lots of countries. Were there any sort of startling differences between the way different countries are approaching e-learning um, whether some have more freedom, m more a lockdown some have got a lot of government support others are, are not, what did you find? It's all a matter of degree really Melanie, I didn't find any significant differences in the conversations that I heard or that I was part of it's just that said there's no radical difference and given that most of the people were higher ed there were a few schoolies and a few you know other community college and TAFE people like myself and Melanie Brenton um, so no and I've been thinking this for a while because you know, as you know I do a fair amount of communicating online with people all over the place and it's yeah it's it's a matter of degree rather than substance look i just wanted to add before when people were talking about facebook so I thought, before i forget the thought one comment that was made at this conference i think it was by brian alexander the yes. the, the geeky guy he just said Cold if facebook decided and 
they just revamped, they just re-engineered one small piece of what they did. And instead of asking, what are you doing now? Get people to say, what are you feeling and what are you thinking? It would almost transform the world. <laughs> 800 million people regularly, all day long, saying how they're feeling and thinking. Imagine that. That could be a real downer. <laughs> well, a lot of people do that anyway, I have to confess, given my observations of uh, social media. I, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and that's quite profound, as opposed to doing, as opposed to feeling. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if you go into social media, a lot of people are expressing their emotional uh, moment, you know, in, through that. It's very cathartic, I think. A lot I think of what most people on. have forgotten that was the question. Yeah, all right. I think it's fascinating that these social mining engines have just. You there? Yep. 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 Sorry, it was cut off. Um, I find it. It's not frustrating, but it's it's kind of that they've made our lives um, their subject. You know, whereas we had we had made their tool, we had made their platforms our tools, and it's so it's sort of a a socio-technical consideration that we need to take whenever we're thinking of it from the micro level of the learner's need and then from a consortium level as to what applications we interface with those large engines and to what dependency we have upon them because they really are they are really are just a suck they're, they're just basically sucking our capacity um, and well, I suppose the question is to what capacity are they are they connecting and creating good stuff? That's, that's just yeah, a really I'd, I'd philosophical been level. For a while, that if we do, you know, inside education, we put people on Google Docs or Facebook or, you know, what we're doing is establishing, look, they're probably there anyway, but what we're doing is establishing a lifetime relationship where, you know, they get sucked. Mm. I, I had a had a, a very interesting. I don't know if you you probably tra- trace it back, but I had a in a comment thread which went on for quite a while with my sister-in-law, and I just posed the question, and I had I was amazed with the response, but I posed the question to her. I said, "Isn't it interesting that um, in our say our time of our mothers with us as children, we would have never, we would have probably only shared, you know, the the, the number of fevers that our child had." You know the weight of their diapers. You know the time that they burped and squealed and squawked and all the rest of it. But now we, we're not—we're seemingly participating in an unthinking manner um, and putting everything online. And it's not—we're not the problem. We're the problem, but the problem is not us. The problem is the future for these kids because they don't have a choice in what's being depicted now and into the future and same with our organisations what we participate with and what we you know we steer and pipe our students through we're we're subject to um, feedback 10 years on you know oh Alex the platform that they're the platform that that we're engaging in probably won't even survive their teenage years years well, that's what we think. But the I look at MySpace. Yeah, but I think that the data... I don't think the actual... Perhaps the face of the company won't. No, but I think the data will. But the thing is, look at Twitter. Everything that's poured on Twitter has gone within a week. 
they don't. This never is delete. about the inst never, this never idea delete. that somehow what you're saying, what you're putting on Facebook with your two-year-old is going to be significant when they're 15 is absurd. It won't even last. It's too much of it. It's too much of it. It's not even going to last. It, 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 today, we're, the sociability of the human condition is very transitory. So maybe that's very the, momentary. Maybe that's the way to break the the suck mechanism. We just overload it. Well, <laughs> oh, we, oh, we, we, we just you know, believe that, you know, that the data that the data is inconsequential due to our memory. I, I believe our memories are contracted. Perhaps, yeah, possibly, the, our memories are contracted. I think the data. I think the data will be used way, way into the future when we've forgotten that what even what the name word Facebook meant. You know, it's. I, I believe the data will be. Mm. I, I, I actually, sorry, I, I, I'll have to go in a minute because I've got to. Um, I can hear one of my kids stirring, and I'm on my own tonight, so I have to do that in a moment. But uh, with the whole Facebook thing, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think, will the suck thing come? And I think all this junk that I put up there, you know, because most of what I put there is total junk. How much valuable information and mining are you going to get out of that? anyway so if it's around in 10 years well does it matter and the other thing I, I and probably in my perception of Facebook has completely changed a bit in terms from the user point of view that I reckon I log into Facebook I'm lucky I reckon once a month maybe to log into it online on a computer I exclusively do it on an iPhone and the experience is different in the sense there are no ads there's it, it's just it, I, I wonder what benefit they're even getting out of me to be honest because I'm not seeing any ads um, I don't get any emails advertising me stuff you know, I just put where you're standing um, to the meter and uh, well no but I turned that off like you know I mean I haven't got that on on there so but even if they know that I'm standing there does it matter no, this is the thing I, I wonder how much it matters because it's rubbish you know like I, I, I and I I don't know. It's <laughs> I could be wrong, and look, I might be you know regretting this in in you know five or ten years time. But you know, well, I suspect you might be eating your words. It's the whole look, debate about be. about as an individual, it probably doesn't mean anything. But in aggregate, in terms yeah. of big data, <clears throat> it, it, there's a there's a good example. For instance, TomTom were aggregating all this data about. Uh, when people were uh, using their devices uh, to navigate their universe. Uh, and it turned out that they sold this informa they sold the information about how fast you were going right. to a third party company who then sold it to the police who uh -huh. used it uh, in aggregate to be able to determine where people were speeding and they put speed cameras there. So on the surface, one is using TomTom quite innocently thinking, oh, well, this is great. But actually, at the end of the day, it comes back to bite you because there's a speed camera there because they've used that data to be able to determine where people are speeding. So, you But know. you could argue that you were breaking the law. Yeah. Oh, sure. You weren't being fined. They weren't using the data to fine you inadvertently. It's interesting because if you think of the layers of what we generally visualise, we don't really think of the different layers of the things that are... Like the TomTom is a device that's being tracked and it only provides information because it's being tracked and fed the information. So it's part of a geospatial kind of mm. layer. Then that layer 
if you know, imagine if the, imagine if the the law enforcement agencies said, look, if you go over seven k's in your car, you'll just automatically get fined every single time because your car's being tracked geospatially using your TomTom. You know, we're getting information from your TomTom. We would probably, you know, put speed limiters in the cars and stop it. But they're using their data and using it to their own advantage. Or TomTom is selling our data to someone who then is using it. I mean, look, I'm not... All I guess I'm saying is that, you know, the argument that... It, it seems inconsequential what we're giving up to these I think networks. That should, I think that's one thing, but it all adds to a sort of whole. Where you know, I think that no. that I think the nub of that is that people buy the TomTom totally unaware and oblivious, totally in the dark that that their data is going to be sold. Yes, that's well, the that, wrong. That, that yeah. that's the real moral question. Well, that's an ethical yeah. consideration that, as a supplier they have to make mm. and if they say no no it's for the better good of the community we're defending this on a law um, perspective then they have they believe they have every commercial right to sell the, the data well, but not without your agreement that's right it needs to be transparent well they Mind sold you, it on to the a, they sold it on to a third party who then sold it on to for the for peaceful purposes on, on, yeah, yeah. So sold it on to the police who used it to be able to make an assessment about where to put speed cameras I come cameras. back to the point that they shouldn't you, when you buy something you don't understand that you're entering into a contractual arrangement with the, with the seller or the creator that they are going to gather data one and then sell it well we are with facebook facebook we know about tom tom we didn't (laughs) no that's right that's right that's that's what horrifies me well the thing melanie i think too is that the tom tom is it's like a physical object you know what i mean Mm. but we're part of we're part of some fairly complex um intuitive and semantic um environments that depend upon these network systems and these, you know, GIS systems to be able to operate as well. And, you know, your phone's one. If, if, if the satellites aren't circling, you can't get the signal and it doesn't work. And there's a thousand other different things going on all at the same time that all come together as one, you know, big picture. TomTom's just one of the devices that we use. We use lots of them when we think about it. Mike, just... just one to, of the, oh, go on, Brad. So I was, one of the things... Um, I know, look, I will have to go after this, but probably I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, actually, Alex, you've got a point. Yeah, I, I'm a bit worried about that. But then I think, but hang on, maybe I want to buy that data because I want to actually target particular huh. students to give them oh, a good course. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, and, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not <clears> saying that I'm, I'm not making... Um, a point on on one or the other. I'm just saying that if it exists, we have to think about it. Not that's all. I mean, that's yeah, the, I agree. The question in in um, in a, to put it in an education framework, there are questions now about that student analytics, and I don't know if that's been hap- is that issue being talked about. Um, yes, very much so. Mm. Very much so. What not, about- just, not participative login, but when a student surrenders, as they call it, uh, their, their identity, their mobile identity, that, they, that the, the educational agency can on-sell um, that information. That information is then used as a, as a, um, as a service route um, and it's about where the phones are, you know, where the, where the people are. If there's 66,000 people and they're nowhere near the campus, then, then wouldn't it inform the organisation that they should shut down a few labs and 
that was more for mobile. That, um, that wasn't what I was talking no, about. Well, really. my, my understanding of, of good use of analytics is actually picking up um, student, student issues and um, needs um, very, very early and kind of capturing them and and, and addressing them in some way. And Michael, what was discussed in the States? Again, it was one of a million things that were touched on. Um, so I can't add any more than that. But, but a lot of the conversation was, um, it was very bitsy. It was kind of coming at a million miles per hour from the floor and there was some group stuff but you probably had 10 group conversations over the course of two days but a lot of it was whole group <clears throat> stuff going out to the to the people up the front who were graphically facilitating or graphically representing it so I'm feeling a bit silly to say here well you know I can't comment on that either so look it was it was it was <laughs> it just like heaps of stuff Michael yeah. can I can I get a feel from you of the type of roles of people who were there just, yeah just before we go just goodbye to Brad just oh. about to check out bye Brad bye Brad, I am, bye, Brad. Bye, everyone. I'll be in touch Thanks. soon Will do. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Um, it, it struck me uh, an email that you sent uh, either when you were there or soon after you, you got back, which um, uh, I wasn't, you know, attending to as much at the time, but it was around um, uh, frustrations around the difference in attitude and values an opinion between people who are pulling the purse strings and making policy decisions mm-hmm. and people who are genuinely interested in what's happening with learners. Mm-mm. Good point. So I, who, who was at the event? Were there managers there? And if so, what did, what did they have to say? If if they were managers, they were managers of private companies or consultancies rather than managers of educational organisations. Most of the people from education were teacher lecturers. I actually, and so much so that I got a little bit frustrated towards the end and that's what prompted my blog post. There were... It was interesting because there was a, all this conversation, a lot, teachers have to know this, or how do we get, you know, that conversation which often evolves in these sorts of discussions, how do we get other teachers on board? And I'm sitting there, you know, bugger the teachers because yeah, they're funny. a little bit irrelevant. And mm-hmm. it was, again, um, Brian Alexander, he said, we need to get hold of the people who make the decisions, the people with power. These are the mm-hmm. people who need to see this information. I'm moving on from your point Robin but I just wanted to kind of stress that it was it was obvious that some people there thought that being a Horizon Report advisory board member should be an active role in the sense of backing change or being someone who's very much in favour of systemic change and I thought that's a little bit dangerous because I, I think the Horizon Report would lose some credibility and it's there was quite an obvious block of people who wanted to use the Horizon Report as a catalyst for change and I thought 
don't know whether that would be wise. But to go back to your original question, managers were mostly uh, from other organisations apart from education. And I don't... I mean, a lot of them spoke, but I don't think of them... I don't remember them pushing an agenda that was any different. Mm. Yeah, well, it sounds like a very... Sounds like a yeah, multi-layered type of experience. Like there was, seems like very heavy with all sorts of different perspectives. It was, but you know the the overwhelming thing. Like I said at the start, was that we've been living and breathing this stuff for at least you know, five years anyway. So we'd have come up with a similar list about the the things that are issues for us in our working context in Australia. So to that ex- extent, it was kind of both. You know, affirming like we are completely in step with the rest of the world and in a way it was kind of a bit oh well yeah okay I know all this there's nothing new here and that's where you think that's the point where I, I want to stop acquiescing in this because we've been talking about this stuff for ages mm. feeling a little bit like we're you know lunatic fringe and then slowly but surely maybe moving to the centre and now I feel like like this this is the way it is you know this is what the world is saying is what is happening but don't you think that's happening despite of um, senior management not because of I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like our organisations are, are existing in two different spheres, two different worlds. Yeah, and that yeah. was a common feeling with school people and uh, universities, colleges. One where it wasn't quite. With, there was a lot of museum people. I forgot to mention them. They are a different breed, and they mm-hmm. do seem to have a lot more freedom. And yeah. the librarians. Yeah. And money. Like how, Sciences. how they run their businesses and how they go about using Web2. And it's like, mm. it's almost as if there's not um, that critical stuff at stake. It's not, they're not kind of concerned with assessment. They're not mm. concerned with people's no. careers. They're kind of this frilly bit on the side that no one really cares. So what they can do is basically do what they want. And they're doing amazing things mm. that we should follow. Yeah, so maybe they haven't lost... Um, focus on their core business which I think education has good point yeah education and training occurs across all industries, across all sectors across all business, across everything that occurs everywhere I think where it becomes an institutionalised practice and when the managers lose touch with the learner, they have no contact with the learner or understanding the the, the, the need of the learner then then yes I would agree then so it would be using the idea would be using the technologies and approaches that museum and libraries have developed to engage yeah and embedding them in within the organisations where people need to go to get qualifications Mm, mm. I mean for how long have we sat and debated things you know for over a decade about how homogenising and how stultifying and how uncreative learning management systems have become no matter how we tweak and try to change the usability and interface of those particular type of, of methodology of engaging, it's to just it's not not a way to it addresses the humanity at all. Mike, can I ask we talked a few a little while ago about um, 
you raised a very interesting point about as teachers or as institutions if we encourage or set up things like Facebook and so on are we exposing learners to a lifetime of of being sucked by the machine Mm -hmm. do you think that or was there conversation around using closed environments I mean I know it's been tried before like teacher tube and um, you know so Yammer and so on so similar environments but behind a closed wall no I mean, there was a very definite sense of that horse has bolted. It's more about how we deal with it and the kinds of things we were saying earlier. You just need to flag it in terms of being aware and just know that people are making conscious decisions when they use these tools. So, no. So it's a bit like a bit like a you know a dam with multitudes of holes in it, and, and in actual fact, we should be. You know, we can't we can't stem the flood of things that are occurring. It's just happening. It's all happening everywhere. And the whole thing is exploding, basically around us. It's everywhere. I'm not sure what it's like at SIT, Stefan, but it must be it must be very complex to try and um, meet the needs of all the different opinions and views and come up with policy that's going to guide. Um, the utilisation of, of this multiplicity of of um, attacks on on uh, on on communication mm. of communication. Well, I wouldn't. I mean, I don't want to com- uh, discuss uh, SOT too much in this forum, but um, no, no. Uh, I mean, no, sorry, I meant, but yeah, in the context of our greatest challenge is our own systems. So which, part, which part of the systems are, are the challenge? Which part is that? Uh, well, you know, uh, uh, the fact that Facebook was only opened up, or social networking was only opened up to staff and st- to staff less than 12 months ago, for instance, just one example. Uh, the fact that. Um, you know, uh, well, opened up officially, but it's always been connected through people's other devices, hasn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm just talking about um, SI, about the organisational systems. Mm. You know, so the endorsed it's connection. still not there for students. It's not there for students yet, no. So, so Mike, did you, was there a general, it sounds like there was quite a, a I'm imagining a, a swathe of, of, of buzz through the group, I mean a very large group, and... Um, you know, a lot of uh, common interests and yet also an excitement, but possibly also common frustrations that you've sort of mentioned. Um, were there anything, anyone, individuals or ideas that were outstanding? Well, it's quite some of that question cold. The only thing I would say was outstanding was the graphic facilitation by one guy called Lev Gonick, who I'd never heard of before, and he's not an e-learning person. He's just someone who's made graphic facilitation his thing. Um, Contributions by individuals, either from the floor or in groups or from the people who spoke, to be honest, no, except for one, one guy who works with... NMC and can 
I just go away and find my notes on him? I should be able to remember it, but I can't. But he was a, a very kind of shy, unimpressive, physically-looking figure who works for NMC, and he was a standout. But let me dig up my notes. Cogdog? He's left the whole scene. Oh, is he? Yeah. Where's he, where's he gone? He's gone very quiet. Yeah, I think he's doing something similar to me. He's roaming about the place, taking photographs and putting them on Flickr. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's nice. He's looking he's after there every himself, day. I think. Yeah. That's what we all should be doing more. He's living in Virginia. Oh, he's moved from Phoenix. Yes. Mm. He's still got the place in, in Phoenix, but mm. he's, um, I'm, I guess he's Rachel. He's probably in Virginia. Mm. Or lives there. Uh, uh. Was Jane Bozarth there? No. Oh, okay. A lot of names that, I mean, so there were not kind of a big list of, you know, e-learning noticeables noticeables notables I mean I think there were two or three people that I'd heard of before Jonathan Finkelstein was one of them but let me find this bloody thing from Ruben whose name was do you think it was a think bubble Michael a what a think bubble oh a think bubble Mm. um I'm not sure what was what was the actual aim of it? What, was it a celebration? Was it just a social kind of celebration, or, or were they hoping for a particular outcome from it? He's gone. No, no, I'm there. <laughs> the the, 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 the aim was really to celebrate the. Um, sounds, you know, trite and obvious, but to celebrate, celebrate the Horizon report. More than that, I don't think they really knew. Well, so uh, they uh, came out with it was a communique. I mean, yeah. obviously it was to, yeah, the future of education. It was to have a big open discussion on the future of education. A lot of what's in the document that you sent us in the, uh, the Google Docs is, re- is a reiteration of the, uh, uh, you know, what's in the Horizon report. Not that that's a criticism, but that's you know, that's what I would say. Well, I thought that too, Steph. Mm-hmm. Do you know? But, you know, those issues were not, you, and they were dragged out of person? nowhere. They were dragged from the people who were there present. Mm-hmm. Can you repeat what that that point was? I, I dismissed it. Sorry. Well, that Stefan thought that the the communique, as it's called, of those. Ten major trends was really just a, a rewriting of much of material that's been in previous Horizon reports, and it is. Well, that's the point that I'd made with Larry through a Twitter kind of address that I couldn't see a number of different, not so much trends, but um, particularly information system changes that were shaping the way that we communicate. They weren't present within the it didn't seem within some of that list. Was, and um, I don't know. I suppose he came back and picked on the POV example. So um, He did? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he sort of came back and said, well, it doesn't exist anywhere as far as we're concerned. 
No, so. well, I've got to say, I'm not seeing it much. I mean, I don't think there is any more POV around than there was three years ago. Mm. But, I, you know, having been on the, on the board, all you can do is put forward what you are seeing and, and reading. And unless it's out there... Mm. For access, I mean, you can't pull things out of out of thin air. Thin air. And no. given that the same people are at the event, and I wish I had been able to go, it's hardly surprising that mm. that the the conversations were were similar, unless somebody has come across or been exposed to something new in the meantime. Then that then um, yeah, it would be the case. But and I but I think you know what. What I would have liked to have seen discussed is is, is some of that, um, and I, I I would have presented it as a frustration that we we see these trends on the ground and and um, in professional educators and in and in people's practice, but. Some things just aren't aren't moving forward. They they continue to be there as friends, but they're not actually gaining legs. And and I think that that's that um, chasm between management and between practice. And Michael, it gets back to your your questions about how do we make how do we change the thinking of, of managers? Is it, is it... I mean, and I don't... You know, years ago I would have said, oh, it will change because, you know, the, the innovative teachers will end up being managers. I don't, I don't think they will be. I think they get burnt out and they leave. Well, I, I've become a manager... <laughs> oh yeah. So you're going to change the world, Steph? I don't know whether I'll change oh, yes, the world, Steph. but uh, I can assure you, I, I still feel the same as I did in 2005, and uh, I will uh, continue the continue to uh, uh, continue to promote the spirit of what we've been talking about and the spirit of the NMC mm. debate. But uh, yeah, look, you know, it's. It's been slow change. Uh, look, uh, uh, sorry, Melanie, I'll just jump in there. I've just finished reading uh, Steve Jobs' biography, or the mm. official biography, and in there, uh, near the end of the book, there's a piece where uh, Rupert Murdoch came to meet with uh, Steve Jobs uh, to have lunch, and um, Rupert Murdoch said, oh, look, I've just appointed this... Um, CEO uh, in our educational uh, part of our division, at, you know, at blah, blah, blah. And Steve Jobs said, look, when I, years ago, I thought technology would transform education. I thought that technological change would actually transform the educational sphere. I was wrong. I've come to realise that education, along with the health sector, is one of the most conservative, uh, mm-hmm. um, social, social uh, uh, institutions there are in society, and that actually it doesn't matter what technology is is there. It's actually the only thing that will change education is is, is a political transformation. And now, now he, Steve, for better or worse, Steve Jobs pointed at education unions. 
and education management as the two greatest inhibitors of change and innovation in the education sector. And I, and I, whether you agree with that or not, I thought that was an interesting, mm. interesting conversation between him and Ruby Murdoch mm. at that time. Very interesting. So the question is, why is that the case? Given, I mean, who are these education managers? I mean, you know, how do we cha how do we change that? Well, they're the same people who, up until twelve months ago, in debt, said uh, social networking ought to be blocked. And it will never and students. Maybe it's just a matter of changing the brake pads occasionally. We understand that the educational organisation is a, is a, is a moral brake. It, it slows things down enough for reflection. Yes. But I yes. think there's just too much. We're grinding on the discs at the moment. Look, I, I mean, I come from a sociology background and there's a whole tradition in sociology, uh, particularly that says that, you know, that whole that, that functionalist uh, argument that says that uh, the education system is a, is a key socialising institution. It is an institution that uh, inculcates ideologically um, human subjectivity. Therefore, it's an incredibly strategic organisation, institution in society. Mm. To so maintain the status quo. Maintain the status quo. And so now, the now, it's become, yeah. now it's become a socio-technical pipe. Yeah, so, you know, naturally it's not an organisation that is going to breed radicalism. Although, of course, universities did. In the 1960s, uh, universities did become a ferment of revolutionary, um, you know, um, Activity. Activity, yeah. Michael, can I ask, do you, do you, you told us the name of the, the new person at NMC, Ruben? Ruben Puentadura. He, I don't know whether he's new. I've found these, the notes. P-U-Puentadura. I'll send it to you, Melanie. And what he was talking about is that we seem to make a distinction between technology and people. It's almost as if it's not part of us. So his little talk was on, you know, what are the what does technology indicate? Or what what we do with how does what we do with technology kind of hook into how we're human? And he talked about things like gossip. Twitter, you know, mobility, the history of humans. We just move around and, and the, the fact that we like to, um, you know, to look at pictures and we like telling stories and we like playing games. It was a really simple view of human behaviour and hooking technologies into these very basic human states. It was just a, yeah. And we like so tribes. Well, yeah. Could look at it like that. We're not doing anything different to what we've done for thousands of years. We're just doing it differently. Well, we're doing it with technology. If you think about the, the thought bubble, then we're very tribal. Yeah. Mm. We've designed technology to, to protect it, protect you know, filtering and bubbling. and. Yeah. So... Do we think, you know, like in our lifetimes, this is a serious question, particularly, I mean, are we ever going to see something in our organisations like MIT and Stanford where all the content is free and it's just the services yeah. that we provide that are going we, to be we are, but we are, but we have, we have to we have to consider that we're we're we're, I think we have to consider that we have to create an education com commons. We've got to create an environment 
and su that supports uh, and funds openness, funds the aggregation of knowledge. We're not doing that. We fund contestability and competitiveness, and and um, we we mm. the whole funding model is ass up in order for us to survive as humans, I think, from an education, educational... There would have to be some very serious political change for that to happen. Absolutely. And I don't see that happening in the near future. I don't think we'll see what MIT and Harvard have done because and, and some of those other highly prestigious schools. Um, what they've done is probably one of their strongest forms of um, marketing, in a sense, and they are in a unique economic and um, educational uh, context that doesn't exist, I don't think, truly here. We don't have those types of... Ins our institutions are not set up the same way those are. They're very different. So mm. I don't think we're going to... I don't think it's, it's, there's not the same imperative and, and I think there are a whole stack of other considerations. But if you were talking about would we ever see in our lifetime a situation where learners could have much more uh, ownership, drive and control um, over what they learn and how, then I think that is possible. Mm, I think, well, it, I think it, needs to be a it needs to be the right of the individual to say, I wish to share my, my learning openly. And I think that I think what you were talking to there, um, Melanie, was that these these particular institutions had a buffer of affordance. Mm. So that that break that af that affordance, which happened over a, only over a decade, and perhaps even not even that, was funded. It was it was it was bequeathed mm. by some yeah. some very very high thinking people who thought. Knowledge has to be aggregated. In order to do so, we have to change fundamentally the whole model of management. How do we do so? We've got to think of a, 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 a way of, of getting rid of this content is king side of it. I mean, it, it may take some sort of crisis to really engender that. Mm, I don't know that it's a crisis. I, I, I think it... I agree. I think it's, it's, it's subsidised and... You know, it'll happen in organisations that are not reliant on on course money. You know, I, I'm not sure what the what the situation is in terms of research in those organisations, but I suspect that they're doing very nicely. Thank you in other in other areas. So, in our current economic climate. I don't think we're going to be seeing too much openness in big organisations no. like that. Yes, but then again, in different sectors, openness is a commercial advantage. Mm. It should uh, be. Yeah, it should and, be. But it, within, it should be. Within, within the Australian or Australasian education sector, there is a great deal of hesitance because competitiveness and com breeds, uh, is, breeds commercial... In, um, 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 What's the word for it? In, in confidence. It, it, yeah, it breeds in confidence. You know, this sense of conservative incompetence mm. creates, at the end of it, basically creates incompetence because the, the knowledge is not being aggregated or shared or nor developed. And my twin concern is about the quality of what's available. Well, that's Absolutely. it. That's it. I mean, look what look what's happened to some of the 
the, the, the um, largest uh, learning object repositories that have been solely directed from um, educational organizational pursuit rather than making them aggregatable, shareable and usable, they've made them the opposite. You know, you've had to be licensed, you've had to be competitively re-advantaged, you've had to have been, you know, it's it's just different. But anyway, I'm, I'm learning a little bit in where I am at the moment, so mm. I suppose I'm reflecting. Alex, I just wanted to, um, I think I mentioned it to Stefan, but not, or maybe I did mention it to you, but it's probably worth get put saying here for the record on the last session of the event in Austin was a real brainstorm of what, what else do you think is out there that should be taken note of and there were about 25 things up on the board and I wanted to add surveillance or mm. ubervalence or you know whatever term you choose to use but I, mm. I just stopped short of doing it because I was I wasn't sure about its relevance now to education so I just you know sat on it and in the wrap-up of the session the facilitators you know commented on all the trends that had been identified and he said one thing stands out for me that strikes me as very unusual that this guy Lev Gonick one of the facilitators said every other event I go to one of the first things to be highlighted is the question of security and and privacy and he said and no one here has mentioned it not in this surveillance kind of context and he said so it obviously hasn't got to you people yet and I was thinking well it had got to me via Alex it has I'm about to present for the record um, at uh, well it's going to be interesting to even how I address it I've got 20 minutes to try and address an audience of some of the world's leading um, exponents, I suppose, on on surveillance, data violence, on you know, there's there's drone drivers there, there's ASIO, federal police, there's there's every there's all nature of law enforcement. But the actual topic of the symposium or international workshop is actually on surveillance. Mm. It's actually on us pointing back at what we recognise are becoming more and more pervasive in everything we do. And no matter what we do, we're noticing around us more and more um, um, controls and vigilance and, uh, uh, you know, this multiplicity of networks of things looking back at us all continuously. And as an artist, that's from my artistic perspective, I think I'm fascinated by the whole, you know, the whole thing about gaze. From an educational perspective, I'm a bit worried about the nature of... Um, you know, the, the, the multiplicity of, of cameras that we've now got in every single environment that we work in, particularly within educational organisations, there's just, it's just a plethora of them. So, yeah, surveillance, perhaps not so much, but definitely the other valences, yeah. The ubervalence is something completely and utterly frightening beyond all of that, Michael. Ubervalence is about... about um, uh, an embedded um, or subdermal technology that facilitates the surveillance of individuals and, and believe me there will be people there who are looking at like today there's a huge database about tracking alligators they put these trackers on the alligators and the alligators you know, move around and they can track where they go and how they do things and all the rest of it well there's a whole range of Initiatives around tracking humans and what they do and where they go and what they're doing, and it's and it's um, 
without their permission. <laughs> without mm-hmm. their permission. So, yeah, I think it's something... It's just, for me, it's just to better understand what it is. Uh, I, that's all it's about for me, is understanding it. And, and when, I'm, when, I look, when I look at where I'm now working, it's a, one, of the, one, of the, you know, one of Australia's biggest data valence agencies. It's, it basically drags information from all sorts of um, uh, collectors and it harvests this information for all sorts of purpose. And that includes um, purpose that's for commercial benefit, for social benefit, for judicial benefit, for all sorts of different purpose. So, so it's the same point that refers back to the point that Melanie made earlier. So we've got this amazing technology, which we all love. It's mm-hmm. made our lives richer and more interesting in so many ways, but there's a sense of, my God, what have we created and what do we do with it? How, we, how do we control it? What are the ethics around all of this? And so, yeah, well, that's what I'm, that's how I'm feeling, I guess, at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I've, as you know, I've talked to, to uh, you know, one particular person who's, you know, avid in that area. But again, <laughs> it came back. It's interesting. You guys, you know, you know what we do. We, we, we're, we're doing it right now. We're podcasting, we're writing, we're thinking, reflecting and distributing and aggregating that content. And sharing it all to anyone. Share, sharing it all to anyone. This particular person wrote something and then asked for a retraction. Said, I wish to retract that. And I said, it's not possible to retract what you've just, we've just published because it's been archived across the net. And I gave him six different examples of where his work now existed across different um, caching <laughs> environments. <laughs> so, it anything to do with talking with GA. No, no, no. No, it wasn't. And th- well, that it happened, as you know, on a previous recording of an audio that he asked for a retraction, which we obliged. So again, today I noticed that the post that had originally been retracted has been re-published. Mm-hmm. And it's been altered and it's been changed. And there's been new considerations injected into that into that one post, which I thought was quite interesting. Mm. Um, and what here, about the, the cached versions, they all differ, which I love, which I think is fantastic, because <laughs> here you've got a leading proponent of somebody who's considering things so deeply, who's perhaps twisting the engines uh, or the you know the networked machine, and saying. I want to have the power of attraction. If I say something, I don't want to be recorded, perhaps, or mm. it's just an interesting kind of it is play, play on it. There's a play on things, and you know, I'm going to I'm going to arrive there next Wednesday. Uh, Stefan will be there to support me. He said within the within really just in terms of my address of my paper, but I'm hoping that it is a cross sectorial meet of minds around what Michael has just notioned just then, mm. around. I'm not there to support one particular sector in their pursuits around this particular type of technology. Mm. I'm interested in a cross-sectorial discussion around these technologies to better, better inform our decisions as educators and how we employ those technologies in our own organisation. That's I, really... That's I really assume, I assume we will uh, re- record your session for posterity, Alex. Well, it's interesting because I would li- I would like you to photograph me, record me. I would like you to distribute and aggregate me. I'd like you to take my account and repurpose it in any way you like. 
but I can guarantee you there'll be people in the in that particular forum who will object to even their name being mentioned or known that they exist at all. Well, that's absurd. It is, isn't it? It is. When well, they you happen say to be. You uh, can't record your session? No, I can. Yeah, well, you can. Yeah, so I, we'll podcast your session on top of it here. Please, please do. Right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those, I mean, and those what? individuals who want to remain completely invisible, despite how absurd such a thing is, mm. what are you going to do with them? Well, what I've done is I've put them up on the archive.org. And I've done it. I've done it now. And what I'm going to do? I don't think that's very helpful for them. Put them well, on archive.org. Well, well, here it is. I'll um, I'll send you the link, and you can include this in the um, in the uh, your your um, address. If you click on that link and have a look, you'll see that this is this is the final program of who will appear at that symposium or that sixth international workshop. It's hosted by the Research Network of Secure Australia. Uh, it's funded by the, the uh, Centre for Transnational Crime Prevention in Australia. And I'm speaking at it. I'm an educator and I'm an artist and I'm being recorded and I believe and I think I have a, an ethical and moral right for the rest of the world to know what I'm talking about in, in the context of my life. And, there's no, and I don't believe that the others have anything to, to hide or... or suppressed that we shouldn't know about as, as humans in the world. It's a it's a discussion and it should be open, not closed. So it's been aggregated. I noticed I that that's, that's been followed through suit with a few other people, so I'm, I'm glad. I'm supported, supported in aggregating it. I had a comment on my podcast from an episode three years ago on mm. synchronous learning and someone had just discovered it, listened to it and wrote and said, look, this is great. There are so many things in here that have been really useful. Thanks a lot. So there it was sitting there three years, probably hardly ever listened to, but someone found it and got a lot out of it. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I get that. The value. On, on uh, YouTube videos that I've put up about, you know, you do. I put up all these link resources on YouTube about how to do stuff and I had one the other day and people were just going, oh, thanks, you you know, fantastic. How how good was that? Yeah, yeah. how good was that? Oh, that just really makes me feel so good. Maybe humans yeah. will triumph over the machine after all. Well, I think I just, I, you know, I landed, I landed yesterday in a job where I went to the front page of the website and went, oh, thank goodness. What, the base of the page has got attribution 3.0 unported. Let it go. Yes. Let everybody have it. I thought, what a breath of fresh air. <laughs> <laughs> and I... And I started, I just walked in the door, I met the very first person, I said, they said, oh, hi, Alex, and, and what, do you, what are you going to be doing here? I said, oh, well, I'll be working in the communications and capabilities area here as a project officer. And I said, I'm just, I'm so glad I'm working for an organisation that's got an open accord to what they're doing. You know, they're, they're, they're letting the world have it. And that person said, yeah, that was a fairly contentious five years of discussion, that. <laughs> so they've gone through it, you know what I mean? Like they've been through all of this, like long, long, long um, changes in policy and arguments and this and that. And they said, finally, we've got there. We've just decided we're going to have, we've decided to create a research data commons. And we'll collect everything and we'll pipe it and we'll distribute it. I thought, Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> I don't know of very other many organisations except what we've been doing in the past of what we do. We've married the same mm. belief that value. 
Okay, so I think on that note, we're at 1 hour 25, which is way over oh, yeah. our uh, 1 hour limit, <laughs> but given that we haven't had many podcasts, we'll let it slip. Can I just come back to where we started, Stefan, yeah. and, and ask, do you think... I guess I'm going to do it anyway, unless someone says, no, it's really stupid. That idea of putting up each of those 10 recommendations or 10 descriptions of trends and asking people to add how it applies practically where they work. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Good I'll do a blog post on it. All right, so I'll give it a go. I'll put them up on a wiki. Wiki or a Google Doc, you think? I'm inclined to go wiki. You've already got it on the Google Doc. You don't need to do anything else, do you? Just make sure that you put it in Facebook and Flickr and everywhere else. Fuck Facebook. Who's got a point to it? Was that the yeah. merging of Flickr and no Facebook, Mike? Facebook? <laughs> Facebook. Well, I, I don't know what I said, but I said it quietly, didn't I? <laughs> I did. have um, tagged Just point it, to it. On, the, uh, on the podcast, on the uh, page for this podcast, so it's, it's there. Right, but, just um, leave it at Google Doc. Yeah, yeah, Google Doc works. It's worked for everyone so far. Cool. Well, if it's open, we can have it. Yeah, it is open. It's open. There you go. See, we don't need to pay for firewalls or pay for licensing on it. We can just read it. But, uh, Michael, if you're wanting people to actually add to it and write on it, then you'll need to start a a separate space away from the event space. Well, they can write in their own space. space. Sorry? What do you mean, Robin? I thought thought the page you you gave to us was one that was used at the event. No. It's yours. It's mine. Okay, that's fine. So maybe, Michael, what you could do instead of having to write on it, maybe you could just invite people in their own spaces to address what you've just asked and then on the document that you have, you can note where other people have written about it elsewhere. Or give them the option, at least. Yeah. You do it right. here so directly on the Google Doc or in their own space. That's, go yep. and, yeah, go off and do it elsewhere. I might do that. I mean, I might get absolutely zero response, but I'd, I'd like to at least try. Sounds good. Sounds I think it's good great. Idea. I think it's a good, good thing to feed back into the NMC, too. Mm. Yeah, it's important, too. All right, well, on that note, we shall end the uh, formal podcast. So, yep. I'll return to my geospatial soup <laughs> and um, try and learn about 55,000 billion acronyms I've got no idea about. Um, wish me luck. <laughs> okay. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Nice talk. Night. Yeah. Thanks for the report, Mike. Very interesting. Yeah, it was great. Sorry, I couldn't answer all those questions. Anyway, no, I'll see honest, some of you next week. It was a it was a good honest uh, honest um, replies, so that's more <laughs> valuable. Mm. Okay, thank you. Thanks, bye. See you all.